Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers to humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited about the show today. Thanks for tuning in. A couple weeks ago, we talked about The Bible Among the Myths, a book by Dr. John Oswalt of Asbury Theological Seminary, and we are going to have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Oswalt this morning. You can find out more about Dr. Oswalt at asbury, A-S-B-U-R-Y, seminary.edu, slash faculty, slash dr, dash, john, dash, Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. Dr. Oswalt is a professor of the Old Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. Some of his books include The Bible Among the Myths, Call to be Holy, Where Are You, God? We Live as Christ, and various commentaries on the book of Isaiah. Good morning, Dr. Oswalt. It is great having you on The God Solution. Thank you. I'm glad for the opportunity. I'd like to ask you what first drew you to the subject of the Old Testament as a focus for your career. Well, it's really kind of interesting. When I first began to read the Bible seriously, I figured I might as well begin at the beginning. And so started with Genesis and slowly worked my way through it. This was during my college years, and I just discovered the Old Testament opening so many doors to my understanding of the Christian faith and my own belief. Then, as I finished college and went on to seminary, I uh, got into Hebrew and found a real affinity for that language. And so when in my second year of seminary I felt a call into teaching, Old Testament and Hebrew were just the naturals. I recently read your book, The Bible Among the Myths. I thought it was wonderful. And for our listeners this morning, I would love to hear you elaborate on the question of why is the Old Testament trustworthy? We ought not to ignore the simplest answer, and that is that the church has found it trustworthy for these 2,000 years. There have been various attempts, both early and late, to get rid of the Old Testament. People will talk about it as being sub-Christian and all that sort of thing. But every time anybody has tried to do that, the rest of the church has said, oh no, no, no. The Old Testament is the foundation of our faith. And I've said to many people across the years, trying to build a Christian faith on the New Testament alone is like trying to build a two-story house by starting with the second story. It's tough to get the boards to stay up there long enough to nail them together. And the same is true for our Christian faith. Without the foundation, without the questions, without the basic understanding of God that is there, it's very, very easy to end up with a kind of a familiar grandpa in the sky who just says, oh, that's okay, honey, just go ahead and do it. And we miss the whole meaning of grace as it comes from God. Now, as to the question more particularly that you ask, why should we trust the Old Testament? I think the answer there is that in remarkable ways, the Old Testament is unique. There are only three monotheistic religions in the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and all three of them got it from the basic same source, and that is the Old Testament. Many people don't know that Muhammad was first a Jew, then a Christian, and then decided to create his own religion. But he is working out of 
many, not all, but many of the basic concepts of the Old Testament. So that in itself raises the issue, where in the world did this unique idea of monotheism come from? Did it come from the Israelites? Well, then, (laughs) what was it about the Israelites that gave them the genius to think up this thing that nobody else could think of? So all of the evidence then points to the Old Testament as having come from God as a revelation. The more complex issue that underlies all of this is the concept of transcendence. Other religions are built on the idea that this world is God. This world is all there is. There's nothing more. If there is deity, it is within the socio-psycho-physical cosmos. But the Old Testament alone says, oh no, God is not this world. God stands outside this cosmos And therefore, you can't represent him by anything in the cosmos. And therefore, of course, he's one. (laughs) There can only be one thing who is beyond every other thing, and that's the Old Testament God, Yahweh. So, long answer to a short question, but the simple answer would be because the clear evidence is that the Old Testament has been revealed by God and therefore can be trusted. I recently finished John Walton's book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. And yes. in his book, he described a lot of the similarities in the ancient Near East and Judaism and the Old Testament. And you discussed those in brief in your book. You discussed how the differences were the essentials and the similarities were accidentals. Yes. And could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. We can look at a human being and a dog, for instance, and find all kinds of similarities. Not only that we've got four appendages, not only that we've got two eyes, two nostrils, a tongue, the gastrointestinal system, the circulatory system, respiratory system. So you could really say that there's no difference between a human being and a dog. They really are the same thing. Well, in fact, those similarities are accidentals, like a B-flat and a (laughs) B-sharp those kinds of things. The note is a B, but the accidentals really don't change the note. So in the same way, human beings are different from dogs, essentially different. And it's the differences that really define what makes us different, what makes us other than the dog. It's the same way in the Bible. You can say, well, all of the ancient religions had gods, And the Hebrews have one God, but it's still a God, huh? But in fact, those gods are all representations of the forces in this world, and the one God of the Old Testament is not this world in any sense. So the fact that he is a deity, and those are deities, those are accidentals. What is really essential is the fact that they are part of this world, and God is is not part of this world. In the same way, you can look at other kinds of similarities. Many of the ancient Near Eastern temples, especially the Canaanite temples, were so-called tripart temples. That is, you had an outer court, then you had an inner room, 
and then you had an innermost room where the idol stood. Well, the Hebrew temple is built on that same pattern. But there's one small difference. In that inner room for the pagan temples is the idol, which affirms again the God is part of this world. In the inner room of the Hebrew temple, there's no idol. There's just a box. And in that box is a covenant, which says this transcendent God, who can't be manipulated through this world, has stepped into time and space, has broken into it, if you will, and has entered into a mutually binding relationship with his people. That's essentially different. Considering those essential differences, what does that tell us about the significance of the Old Testament text? I know you describe many different aspects of the significance of the Old Testament, including a unique historical perspective and some of those things and how they led to the current perspective on reality that the Western world enjoys. Would you elaborate on that a little bit and tell us some of the uniqueness and the corresponding significance of the Old Testament for Western thought? I've already touched on two of them. The first is God is transcendent. He is not part of this world. Other religions of the world see him as part of this world. Second, he is one. All of the rest of the ancient world sees God as many. And you can understand, if you are attempting to understand invisible reality by starting with this world, well, of course, invisible reality is many. So is this world. So that the polytheism of the other religions is a natural result of reasoning from this visible world to the invisible world. The whole idea that there is a oneness behind the visible manyness of what we see is absolutely fundamental to the way in which the West has thought about reality. It's possible to find the key, the core, in the middle of the complexity of life. If you don't believe that, then many of the, quote, sciences become meaningless because there is no unity in all things. Everything is many, everything is diverse, and you can't possibly find it. That, of course, then relates to legal reality. Are there principles which are rooted in the very character of the one creator of the universe? If so, then whether I like it or not, whether it seems beneficial to me or not, I've got to follow those. So we in the West have believed that there is a single code of ethics that relates to everybody everywhere. Of course, there are varieties as you apply those things, but underneath it all is one single code of ethics. That, of course, is disappearing. The whole question of, well, should we display the Ten Commandments? Never mind that they are inscribed in stone on the Supreme Court building. It'll be interesting to see when we start taking uh, jackhammers to that front to get rid of that. So the oneness of God is so fundamental in so many ways. The idea that you cannot represent him in any form. 
And interestingly, it's the same three religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which deny the possibility of representing God as an idol. All three of them got it from the one single source. And again, that argues for that kind of revelation that we've talked about. Another factor you mentioned it a moment ago is the importance of history. It's interesting that in paganism, and you've got sort of two opposite trends at work here. In paganism, as you try to imagine the invisible world on the basis of our world, that means a whole host of things. For one thing, it means that in reality, this world is unimportant because it's just a shadow of that other invisible world that's in the background. So why write history? It doesn't really matter. We came from nowhere. We're going nowhere. Life is an endless, endless cycle. You live, you die. Somebody else is born, they live, they die. Somebody else is born, they live, they die. It really doesn't matter. There's no purpose in existence. There's no goal in existence. So who cares what some dead person did in the past? It doesn't make any difference to the future. But if you believe in a single creator who is not this world, who made this world on purpose as an expression of his own loving will, then this world suddenly becomes very important because God made this world on purpose. It's not a dim reflection of some eternal, invisible reality. That means, then, that a creator made the world for a purpose. And you can study the world. Is the world achieving the purpose, or is it not achieving the purpose? If so, why? If not, why? So that that whole understanding of God's otherness, his oneness, and his creatorship gives meaning and purpose to life, and you can begin to study life and say, hey, it matters. Also, in the other worldview, there are no real choices. What you do is really all determined already in that invisible world. All you can do is just sort of accept your fate and try to be noble about it. That's really what Greek tragedy is about. People who can't help doing what they do, but they do it in a noble way, and you feel good about it. To which the Bible gently says, hogwash, we are not fated. We have real choices that we can make, and we're accountable for those choices. So, those are some of the issues. As you know from the book, there are about 15 or 16 differences between the biblical understanding of reality and the other one. But those are some of them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Walton, in his book, described history in the ancient Near East as man's way of affirming to God his own value or trying to convince God of his worthiness, while in the Bible history was God's way of revealing himself to man. There were kind of these inverse concepts of history. Yes, I, I think he's exactly right on that. In a real way, 
what's happening in the Old Testament is people are saying, wow, I can't go out of time and space to get hold of God. God is not in this world, so I can't manipulate him through rituals or through an idol or some other way. But God has broken into our time and space, and you think of Abraham, and he has then revealed himself in the context of our human historical experience. That means that if we're going to know God, we better keep track of that human historical experience as carefully as we can. You can't fudge it, because if you do, you've just lost God. So that that impetus for keeping track of what God has done with us in the past becomes the means whereby we learn who God is. What kind of evidences are there for the historical trustworthiness in the Old Testament. So we read some of these different historical accounts in the Old Testament, and we recognize that they are written in a very dramatically accurate historical way compared to their ancient Near East neighbors. What kind of evidence supports the credibility of those historical accounts? I think we have to walk carefully some of the ways in which archaeologists in the past have tried to do archaeology in order to prove the Bible, have sometimes kind of backfired. Finally, there's not going to be any absolute proof. And I would go to Jesus there. Is there absolute proof that Jesus lived, that he said the things he said, that he did the things he did? No, there isn't. There is, I think, enough evidence But in the end, we're still going to have to come to that place of faith where we say, okay, on the basis of this evidence, I'm willing to stake my life on its truth. In that regard, I think there is an abundance of evidence that the Bible is indeed historically accurate. One of the evidences is the Bible itself. When, as you mentioned a moment ago, when you recognize the radical difference between the Old Testament recording of human historical experience and the recording of human historical experience other places in the ancient world, that in itself raises the question, why the difference? I think one very satisfactory answer for that question is because they were seeking to record as faithfully as they could within their time, within their level of understanding, within their understanding of accuracy, what really happened. Now, that being said, you've got a number of indications that, yes, this is the case. One of the most interesting ones, the Old Testament refers to the Hittites. Until 1909, There was no evidence anywhere of people called Hittites. And so it was often said, here's a piece of evidence. The Hebrews are just making it up as they go along. In fact, there was a great Hittite empire in what is now Turkey. And when it was destroyed in the 1200s, those people moved down into what we would call Canaan. The Bible knew exactly what it was talking about. Another interesting Peace. The book of Daniel, 
when the hand wrote on the wall, the king, Belshazzar, is terrified, and he calls for somebody to read this writing. And he says to Daniel, when he's called in, I will make you third in the kingdom. Well, (laughs) if he's so terrified, why didn't he make him second in the kingdom? And the answer is because he couldn't. Belshazzar was second in the kingdom. Now, we didn't know this until, again, the last century and a half, when it was discovered that Belshazzar was really the regent. The actual king had decided to go on a retreat, and he was out in the desert at an oasis and had taken all the gods with him. So third was the highest benefice that Belshazzar could possibly give. It will regularly be said, because the last chapters of Daniel seem to predict events during the uh, 2nd century B.C. with such detail that, oh, it must have been written after that. I think it's very unlikely that somebody writing five or 600 years after Belshazzar would have known that little detail. So you find these kinds of things, and in some ways, the very presence of these little details is more convincing than something that might be a lot larger. So again and again, when we can test the Bible, we find, yes, indeed, there is support. Uh, There's a great struggle today over whether there was an exodus or whether there was a conquest. But interestingly enough, the hill country of Canaan was largely empty in the 1300s or thereabouts. And then, in a very short time, villages crop up in that hill country. I wonder where those people came from. The Bible would give us an answer. We've discussed a little bit about the difference between the Old Testament and myth. And in your book, you described how culture today is trending back towards these mythical concepts and kind of a mythical worldview. Could you briefly describe what you see in our culture today and how that relates to some of the same myths of the ancient Near East? Yes. Number one, we are back to the belief this psycho-socio-physical world is all there is. You look at someone like Carl Sagan, you look at others, and they are saying exactly what the pagans of 4,000 years ago said. Now, those pagans are just one step ahead of the Sagans and others in that they're saying, and there is a spiritual component in this psycho-socio-physical cosmos that we see. Sagan and others would deny that. They would say, no, no, this is only a mechanical, electrochemical cosmos. And the ancient pagans would say, uh, just keep digging around a little bit, and you'll discover there's something more in here than you think there is. But having said, this world is all there is, then immediately all those other things come into play. Obviously, there's no purpose in life, which is the problem with classical evolution. I don't have a problem personally with the idea that God may have taken a long period of time to direct the creation and development of this world. I don't have a problem with that. 
My problem with classical evolution is it insists everything occurred by chance, and what is, is by chance. Then, when those people begin to talk about, oh, that was a bad thing, huh? Who says it was bad? Everything that happens, happens by chance. And therefore, in the end, there is no good or bad. And that means then, of course, that ethical behavior becomes totally, totally relative. Well, hey, this is in my best interest, so it's right. I'm sorry it's not in your best interest. That's too bad. Life's tough. The result then is the only absolute is power. And whoever can gain the levers of power is going to run the show. Right, wrong, bad, good, who says? It's whoever's got the power. And the result then is the kind of dog-eat-dog world which the ancient world knew all about. The lack of purpose, the lack of ethical absolutes, when it is then coupled with the sense of the cyclical nature of living, we came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, means that we are deprived of any sense of purpose in our living. And you don't have to look very far today to see, well, about all we can do is just sort of each of us choose our own purpose. You know, my purpose in life is going to be um, figuring out all the ERA statistics of all the pitchers of baseball who ever lived. And that's my purpose in life. Well, <laughs> if that's the only purpose there is in life, then it's not too surprising that our suicide rates are going up geometrically and are beginning to match those of Europe where they've been a couple of generations. Scary stuff. Thanks again okay. so much for being on the show, Dr. Oswald. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Oswald this morning. Once again, his books include The Bible Among the Myths, Called to be Holy, Where Are You, God? We Live as Christ, and various commentaries on the book of Isaiah. I would encourage you to go by Amazon or any other online bookseller, type in Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-T, and look at some of his books and get a few. He's a great author, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from what he has to say. The main thing that we learned this morning is the significance of God, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, and his desire to interact with human beings. Before we leave, I want to encourage you that God loves you dearly this morning. The same God of the Old Testament that said in Jeremiah that he has loved you with an everlasting love, that same God revealed in Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who said he laid down his life for you, for his friends, that same God this morning desires to have a personal relationship with you. The Bible tells us that each one of us are loved by God, yet sinful and separated from him. It also tells us that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, came and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for all of our sins. He took our sins on the cross, and the Bible says he literally nailed them to the cross, paying the penalty that we deserved so that we could have an eternal life with him that we did not earn. The way that we can 
acquire that eternal life, that relationship with God, is by grace through faith, the Bible tells us. It's not by works. It's not by going to church every Sunday. The Bible says that anyone that comes to him and receives him will be adopted into his family. You can receive him by putting your faith and your trust in him through prayer right now this morning, saying, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. He says at that very moment, as you place your faith in him, he literally comes into your life, forgiving you of your sins, giving you an abundant life full of his presence here on this earth and an eternity with him in heaven. I hope that you'll come to know him this morning if you don't already. I'd like to invite you to a local church this morning. You can visit First Baptist on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street. They meet this morning at 1045 a.m., Again, that's First Baptist on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they'll be meeting at 1045 a.m. this morning. If you get a chance to visit, tell Pastor Jeff and anyone else you see that we say hi. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com, and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening this morning. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.